0: Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center and Europe-Russia-Eurasia program at CSIS.
1: And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia
0: and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic International Studies. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. You're listening to the latest episode of Russian Roulette. Today, Maria and I are joined by two leading scholars in the field of Russian area studies, Dr. Andrew Monahan and Dr. Richard Connolly, to discuss their most recent book, an edited volume titled The Sea in Russian Strategy. Andrew is the director of the Russia Research Network, which he founded in 2006. He is a non-resident associate fellow at the NATO Defense College and commissioning editor at the NDC's Russian Studies series. He's also an honorary senior research fellow at the University of Birmingham and a global fellow at the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Richard is the director of the consultancy, Eastern Advisory Group, and a senior honorary fellow at the Center for Russian, European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Birmingham, where he specializes in the study of the Russian economy. Additionally, he is an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, and an adjunct senior fellow in the Transatlantic Security Program at our good friends, uh, the Center for New American Security, CNAS. I want to thank you both for joining us. Let me jump right into the questions. Your book aims to be the first real sustained examination of Russian maritime power in the period since the fall of the Soviet Union, and you've brought together a number of leading specialists to contribute essays to this work, including Michael Kaufman and Dmitry Gorenberg, among many others. Can you just tell us more how this idea came together? Why this? Why this topic and what prompted you to want to focus on Russia's naval and sea strategy?
2: Thanks, Max. And good to join you and Maria on the podcast. Thank you very much for having us.
0: The idea came out of looking for a way to
2: try to understand Russian power and the changing dynamics of Russian power. And one of the ways that we've looked into this over the last few years is to think about the nature of Russian strategy, how Russia does and doesn't work, the chain of command, the way that projects and plans are resources and implemented. With this in mind, we've already done some work on wider Russian grand strategy, but also internal dynamics of Russian strategy. And we were looking for different aspects and different ways of examining this thread. And one of those was the nature of the sea in Russian strategy. We both have an interest in that. We've both done our reading about Soviet naval strategy, Imperial Russian Navy. And this seemed to me an underexplored but increasingly important aspect of Russian power. So we spoke about that, and Richard has certain views on it, which he'll talk to shortly. So we wanted to try and build up this idea of Russian strategy and then incorporate a new approach to it about how Russia has more of a global and maritime horizon.
0: Richard, curious for your thoughts. What attracted you to the subject?
3: Thanks, Max. And uh, to echo Andrew, thanks to you all at CSIS for inviting us on. I, in addition to what Andrew just outlined, I also came up from a slightly different angle. I'm principally concerned with the Russian economy and specifically with the Russian defence industry. So I've been following the Russian defence industry for a decade or so before this was published. And a big part of the military modernisation programme from 2011 onwards was initially concentrated on the naval shipbuilding programme. And that was something that had piqued my interest. In 2011, 2012, the Navy had received the largest share of the funds that are being allocated towards the state armaments program to 2020. So I'd been following the progress of that, the money allocated towards it, the progress made in the shipyards and developing different types of naval platforms. So that had interested me. I was also interested in the fact that as somebody who's concerned with the Russian economy and its role in the global economy, this ongoing shift that accelerated after 2014 from what we can broadly say, the West to the non-West. And of course, in doing so, Russia's horizons has shifted away from its principally, not exclusively, but principally land connections with Europe towards more seaborne trade with the countries of uh, South and Southeast Asia. In addition to that, anybody who's been following Russia would have seen the growing interest in the Arctic and icebreakers, for instance, and uh, various other infrastructure and ships that were associated with that all became part of this interest in increasing Russia's presence in the Arctic. So it was a confluence of a number of different factors, but it all seemed to be pointing the direction of, as Andrew outlined, the growing rule of the
0: sea. Maybe before turning it over to Maria, maybe if you both could sort of outline how the Russian Navy has sort of progressed since the end of the Cold War. I think many listeners will be more familiar with kind of the state of the Russian army sort of going into disrepair and a degree of collapse following the collapse of the Soviet Union, then Putin coming to power, investment in modernization. What's the sort of narrative arc here about the transition from the Soviet Navy to the Russian Navy and how have things sort of progressed over the last 30 years?
2: I think that question about a narrative arc is a very important one because when we think of the Soviet Navy, we think probably of the late Soviet era and Gorshkov's fleet becoming more of a global presence. But then at the end of the Cold War and in the early Soviet period, there was a great shortfall in funding, partly as the Soviet state began to dissolve and unwind. In 1990s, you have a very complex crisis, not only for the Navy, of course, but for the armed forces, government and society as a whole. But naturally, the Navy is within that as a feature of that as much as any other And so you have a shrinking of the Navy by a substantial extent, not only in terms of its combat capacity, but in terms of its actual size as well, and the ability to deploy on exercise, even the ability to look after its own vessels, not only its own vessels, its own personnel. So you also have something of a socioeconomic crisis that is widespread, I think, throughout the Russian Navy during the 1990s and into the early 2000s, exemplified probably by the sinking of the Kursk submarine, which revealed a number of other aspects about the Russian armed forces as a whole also the chain of command of vertical velocity of the early Putin era. But it's important to note that a series of problems have continued, of course. We recently read of the fires on the heavy aircraft carrying Kuznetsov, for instance, but also on the Lasharik submersible. We understand there's dysfunctionality within the chain of command, the Baltic Sea Fleet Command being fired in 2016, and so on and so forth. So persistent sets of problems. But actually, in some senses, a complete reversal, that narrative arc that you point out from disaster through to challenge. Because by the middle of the 2010s, so after about 15 years of investment and effort, you suddenly find that the Russian armed forces as a whole are modernizing and the Navy is part of that too. So you suddenly find, that, as our NATO commanders and others point out, Cold War levels of activity in the North Atlantic. We find in 2014, the Russian flotilla from off the north coast of Australia at the same time as the G20 posing deployable maritime power. And then of course, we have the Russian Navy involved in the war and struggle against Ukraine, both in terms of the Sea of Azov in 2018 and of course now the war. So in many ways, it's a real R from disaster to essential feature of great power competition. Richard, anything to add
3: there? Yeah, I think there's a few points to add to that, I think. Number one, if we think of Russia, if we think about its capacity to sustain a world-leading navy, a lot of the trappings of that were lost in 1991. You had some of the biggest shipbuilding facilities lost in Ukraine. around Crimea and the further west, and they were a big loss. A lot of construction, a lot of manufacture of components took place in Ukraine. You also lost a lot of other bases and supporting infrastructure. Riga, for instance, was not necessarily from a naval point of view, but certainly from a maritime point of view, was one of the most important ports, international ports, of the Soviet Union. In addition, with the sharp reduction of Russian power following the collapse of the Soviet Union, you also see the loss of bases abroad, you know, elsewhere, Cuba, Vietnam, Elsewhere, So a lot of the trappings of what was this world's Second Navy pre-1991 vanished almost overnight. So that was part of this narrative arc of decay and diminishment that Andrew's just outlined there. I think what we also saw in the last decade, was, and I mentioned at the beginning my interest in the military modernization programme, particularly under the state armaments programme to 2020, was this re-emphasis on naval power. What we see there are some technological changes driving a change in what the Russian Navy could do, the types of missions that it could conduct. During the Soviet period, you had a lot of of ships performing very specific roles, whereas from 2010 onwards, you see an emphasis on constructions of ships that can perform lots of different roles. And in particular, after 2010, this is something we've seen in the war over the last 15 months, you saw the Russian Navy increasingly equipped a larger number of platforms able to conduct sea-on-shore strike operations using principally long-range cruise missiles. We've seen those used a lot, in particular the 3M14 of the Kalabir family. So that was something that became a particular characteristic of the Russian Navy from about 2010 onwards, but really they start being deployed in numbers in the middle of the decade from about 2015, onwards. we see them first used in Syria, and then later, of course, in the war in Ukraine. So that was a very important technological change. And what you see is these missiles and the ability to launch these missiles, the launch systems proliferating across the Navy. So we see them on the conventionally powered nuclear submarines, the varsha class, we see which were produced first for the Black Sea and are now being deployed elsewhere. We saw them being fitted onto the new classes of nuclear powered submarines. So that would give strike submarines an ability to conduct a wider range of missions. We saw these launch systems, push onto modernized versions of Soviet era platforms they Anything new that the Russians built after the early 2010s would be equipped with this cruise missile capability that could be used for anti-ship strikes, but also for, as I said, land attack missions. The other important point to make, I suppose, here is to highlight some continuity, and that was the emphasis on the nuclear strike part of the Russian Navy's mission. And, you know, the, the SSBNs, the SSGN, so the, the nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines and the nuclear-powered strike submarines all receive the best, you know, the highest amount of funding and the best manpower. So SEVMASH, which is where these things are built, was loaded up with orders from, you know, from well over a decade ago and has been producing these new classes, the BORÉ for the SSBN role and the Yassen for the more multi-purpose world. and the SFMASH has been churning out boats in this realm quite consistently and at a pace that is actually well above the average for the rest of the shipbuilding industry. So in that respect, Russia has maintained a lot of those strengths that it had during the Soviet period and has added to them over the course of the last decade or so. And it's in this area, the Russian Navy, where it probably still can be considered to be in the top tier of nuclear-powered submarine producers in terms of quietness, range of missions that can be conducted. It would appear from the literature that it still uh, surpasses, for instance, the Chinese Navy in this particular area in a way that it doesn't elsewhere. So those, I think, are the two principal characteristics about the Russian Navy, if we just sort of take a bird's eye view, an ability to conduct a growing range of missions with the advent of the long-range cruise missile, and then this continued emphasis on nuclear strike missions.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew and Richard. That's fascinating, but also I have to say a little scary, given how quickly a Russian naval potential is growing. So one question that I had from reading the book, it looks like most analysts tend to agree that Russia doesn't really have a separate naval strategy, but Putin does have a strategy in which Navy plays a crucial role. And from that perspective, of course, the war in Ukraine that Russia is currently has launched uh, plays a particularly important role. Maybe you can comment on it. So first of all, what's the strategy for the use of Navy in general? going forward. And of course, the elephant in the room is the war in Ukraine. Do we see, of course, that potential to be more actively used in Ukraine? Of course, we've heard some of these developments like downing of the Moscow ship. That's probably does not bode so well for Russia's Navy going forward. So anything you could comment on that would be helpful.
3: I will tell you what, I'll leave the strategy aside to Andrew and the role of the Navy in that. And I'll address the question you asked there about the role of the Navy in Ukraine. And I think your question is a a good one. and It's one that we hear a lot, but I think it also belies what I think is perhaps a misunderstanding of actually just how important the Russian Navy has been in the war. And if we think about some of the successes from a Russian point of view that they might have experienced in the war so far, one of those is surely being the effective embargo of pretty much anything coming out of Ukraine by sea and the navy's played a key role in that not just the navy but also naval aviation and land based anti-ship missiles but you know anything facing the sea that gives the russians the ability to shape that maritime environment in and around ukraine is very important now this started off even before the onset of the full scale invasion of february 2022 if we go back to 2021 and we see the fighting in and around the sea of azov the closing off of the sea of azov using at the time, FSB elements rather than you know conventional Russian naval units, we saw a tightening at that point of Russia's control over that sea and an ability to interdict and at least control the nature of the trade flows that went through there. And of course, it was this, the Sea of Azov was very important for the export of grain. And then this was expanded in February 2022. So I think that's the first point, and it's a really important one. A lot of Ukraine's trade in particular its grain trade, is seaborne. It flows south through the Black Sea and out towards customers in the Middle East and North Africa. And Russia has the ability to say whether that happens or not, hence the importance of these periodic extensions to the grain agreement that they have with, uh, with Ukraine. So that, I think, just shows us the importance of this naval mission and actually the relative success of it. That's the first point. Second point is that they've used... Um, naval units, naval platforms to conduct, to support the land forces and the air forces in carrying out strike missions in Ukraine. So we see pretty much every time you see a large scale uh, cruise missile strike on Ukraine or drone strike, it will be accompanied with at least some of the three M14s fired from either submarine based elements or surface platforms from the Black Sea Fleet. We've also seen some of the Caspian fleet vessels Enter the Black Sea and launch missiles from there. And I think we've also seen them launch from, no, possibly not from the Caspian Sea. I'm possibly getting a bit mixed up there, but certainly we've seen Caspian Sea flotilla vessels within the Black Sea launching uh, missiles. We also saw, for instance, you mentioned the Moskva, the Moskva's principal combat role was to provide air cover because it had a pretty sophisticated air defense system which of course didn't prove very useful in the end when it got sunk. But before that, it was carrying out that mission. And that is not something we should dismiss as being, you know, sort of of marginal importance. At that stage of the war, it was performing a pretty important mission. And in fact, since it has been sunk, they've had to sort of withdraw a little bit and are able to carry out some of the missions that they were before. So I think, you know, to sum up, the Navy's played a, a much more important, albeit supporting, but nevertheless important role in Ukraine than many observers give it credit for. And as its losses go, they're pretty modest. Notwithstanding the Moskva, we've seen the loss of uh, you know a one or two relatively minor, usually Soviet era, as was the Moskva, uh, platforms. Um, but for the most part, the rest of the platforms have been performing very well. By the way, that's before we even get to talking about the role of naval infantry in the war. I know we're principally concentrating on things that sort of float today and the naval infantry occasionally do when they're being deployed, but we saw some use of that as well. Remember in the early stages of the war, there was the fear that naval infantry were going to be launched to carry out an invasion further west towards Odessa, And that was a threat that was hanging for some months. So I think if we're to take a balanced approach here and look at the role of the Navy, it's performed a number of important functions and it's performed a number of them quite well.
2: To follow up that, I think it's very important to emphasize just how much the war in Ukraine is actually, has a maritime aspect to it. Of course, all the fighting in some senses, in inverted commas, seems to be taking place on the ground. But actually, a lot of the fighting is really also about the ownership of the Sea of Azov. You'll have noted probably that the Kremlin came out recently with legislation to cancel the cooperation in, in the Sea of Azov. It's also about port infrastructure and command and control of transit routes, as Richard was saying, and blockade of those. So I think we have a good example of how naval power is being deployed to meet strategic ends. But with that said, I just want to wind back a little bit, just think a bit about what Russian strategy in broad terms is about. It's about trying to prepare Russia to compete in a decade of geoeconomic competition, of structural change in international affairs, of an international shift of power towards more towards the Pacific, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific regions. Also, it's a, it's a world in which trade and economic opportunity is taking shape across the world in many ways, in Africa, in, as I say, in the Indian Ocean, but also in Latin America, in the Gulf and, and so on and so forth. So there is a, a substantive change in international affairs, which is actually leaning towards a more maritime environment. And Moscow is certainly part of this. So it's recognized it and moves towards it. So what role does the Navy have to play in this? Well, I think we can point probably to four aspects that I think are interesting. And they're obviously more drawn out in the book. But let's go with them to illuminate them a little bit for your listeners. The first is this sense of, of geoeconomic competition, that the Navy, in this respect, one of its tasks is going to be to protect Russian economic interests further afield. Second, as we're seeing quite often within this, a sense of of the Navy playing an important role in diplomacy as well. We see, for instance, lots of ship visits, the 2019, of course, circumnavigation by uh, the Admiral Gorshkov and a number of other vessels from the Northern Fleet. But actually also you're seeing now the head of the Navy. Nikolai Yevmianov, meeting with senior Iranian officials, with senior Chinese officials. So the Navy is playing a role not only in ship visits, but also in, in some form of interactive, let's call it defense engagement, for want of a better phrase. But the Navy is also playing an increasing role in Russian military strategy. Let's, let's frame it this way. Russian military strategy formerly was heavily dependent on, on focused on ground forces. But even during the 2010s, Gerasimov was quite explicit about trying to shift and make it more make military strategy more flexible so that the, the most relevant service would be the foundation service. I think we see the growing role of the Navy in military strategy by the promotion of the northern fleet from being a fleet to being a strategic command to being a military district. And I think this is one of the questions that we want to bear in mind here. The growing role of the Navy within Russian military strategy, particularly as they regenerate and reconstitute their ground forces, through the mid-2020s, the Navy is going to have a greater role. But as we look at this, it's not just a question of greater role in conventional nuclear deterrence. It's also a more substantive role, for instance, in fortifying and defending the Northern Sea Route. This again was one of the points that Gerasimov raised in his address to defence attachés last December. Interestingly, he pointed out three or four major priorities for Russian defence, which were maritime in aspect. The first was the defence of the Northern Sea Route, claiming that the US and its allies challenged Russia's ability to call that its own route. He also pointed to the Australia, UK, US submarine deal AUKUS as being a challenge to to regional security, and also the question of, he he asserted, US provocations over Taiwan and and China. So these all have maritime aspects to them as part of this this sense of international competition. Watch, therefore, for the fortification of the North, not only with the rebuilding or re-establishment of military districts there, but with the addition of combined armies to the Northern Fleet and so on. But it's not just that aspect that we want to be looking at. I would urge you not to think purely in terms of Navy for strategy. Think more maritime. It's a maritime doctrine, after all. Of course, there's a document, Fundamentals of Naval Policy, but think maritime, because often you find the Navy and other interests combined, not only economic, but hydrographic, for instance. And we discover, it was emphasised recently, that Russian vessels were, were not far from UK infrastructure, maritime infrastructure, for instance, recently. But also we find Russian research vessels down in Antarctica. There's an aspect here also almost of dual use where the Navy and research vessels work together to achieve a a more global presence and to develop certain aspects of Russian power in different ways across the world. So naval strategy itself doesn't exist because the Navy is there to support broader grand strategy. That grand strategy is going to see the role of the Navy increase, but as part of a more maritime presence
1: that's fascinating. Uh, Just to follow up on that, could you please elaborate to what extent these goals uh, are achieved in uh, Ukraine? What is Russia really trying to achieve there? Is it that Russia is trying maybe to control the Black Sea in the good old memory maybe of Catherine the Great and completely cut off Ukraine maybe of the access to the shore, but maybe therefore it will help Russia economically going forward, as Andrew, you have pointed out. And also specifically, given your emphasis on the geoeconomic aspect of this dynamic, could you perhaps discuss a little bit what it means for Russia's economic might going forward? Do we see the maybe the emphasis in energy trade, in grain trade being shifted towards the sea trade from where it's currently at maybe be, uh, especially when it comes to the energy, Russia used to transfer a lot of that using pipelines. So we could comment on that. That'd be really great.
3: Excellent. Thanks, Maria. Um, to your first question, I, I don't know whether or not the control over the Black Sea, Ukraine's expense is the principal goal, but it certainly would appear to be a very important secondary goal in asserting greater influence and control over Ukraine. And an ultimate objective. You know, I wouldn't go too further beyond saying that because um, I'll be honest, I haven't seen any official statements uh, to the effect that control over the Black Sea and cutting Ukraine off from being able to trade from the southern coast is an objective as such. I can see why it would perform an important function as a supporting objective in order to, to be able to assert greater pressure on Kiev, But beyond that, I, I don't know. And I'm only going off the evidence. We do know, of course, that Russia sees the Black Sea as an extremely important area in and of itself, regardless of Ukraine's place in it. Um, And the reason for that, of course, is, as it is with Ukraine, that this is the principal point of departure for Russian grain. And if we think about Russian grain, just to make some, perhaps your listeners um, might not be familiar with the fact that, you know, from being an enormous importer, a nest importer of grain during the Cold War, and this was a real significant weakness of the Soviet Union, its basic inability to feed itself and therefore have to rely on imports from its adversaries like the United States, Canada, etc. Um, Russia has today, after 30 years of transformation in its agricultural sector, emerged as the world's largest exporter of grains, especially wheat. Wheat is the biggest part of that, to a lesser extent, barley. But that, I think, is a point worth making here because it's now agricultural um, products in total amount to in the region of uh, exports last year, amounted to in the, I think the high 40 billions, about 45, 47 billion dollars. I'm going off the top of my head there. It may have been even more. And at least half of that came from the export of grain or grains, Mm -hmm. uh, principally wheat. Most of this goes through the Black Sea and most of it travels to markets in the Middle East and North Africa. So Egypt um, is I think the single largest consumer of Russian grain. But what Russian and Ukrainian grain does is set food prices in these you know, large, you know, populous, rapidly growing, sometimes politically quite volatile parts of the world. Russian grain is sold from you know, all across Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East and North Africa, and all the way further east to countries like Bangladesh, where it plays an important role. So once you have that sort of context in mind, you can see why the Black Sea would be important, even just from an agricultural point of view. Then when we add on the important oil refineries, ports for exporting oil as well, gas pipelines, uh, the gas pipelines that are in exist that transport gas to Turkey and via Turkey to some of Southeast Europe are still much in use, unlike some of the gas pipelines that flow to Europe. So Russia has significant geoeconomic interests in the Black Sea and in Imagine dominating the Black Sea, but at least ensuring that, that the Black Sea is not dominated by other powers that might be able to threaten its ability to export these products. I mean, you know, the three most important export products for Russia are oil, gas and grain. <laughs> and those three all flow through in large volumes through the Black Sea. So I think that's very important. But I mean, I'm speaking there about the Black Sea in Ukraine. If we think about the role of the sea more generally in Russia's geoeconomic thinking, um, In in my chapter, and I think in several others, um, we identify the fact that prior to 2014, um, we see a slow shift towards the east, driven by closer relations with China. In that respect, Russia wasn't so different from many other countries. We looked at trade data for Germany or for the UK, um, or you know, for most countries in the world, they have experienced this same shift towards a growing role uh, for China. But what we see after 2014 is much sort of faster growth in trade with countries outside Europe and in particular of exports of um, non-hydrocarbon products. A lot of that driven by grain, but also by um, exports of other products and imports of of electronic components, for instance, that have been sanctioned uh, by the West in the first round of sanctions back in 2014. So after 2014, you see a, a hastening of this process of what I Referred to in my book on sanctions, which we're not discussing here, as as a sort of re globalization, Russia shifting away from its traditional, very close relations with the West and not going in on itself or facing in on itself, but instead diversifying its trade relations with countries of the non West. And he's concentrated on China, but he's also accompanied by faster trade with the likes of India, Vietnam, um, Indonesia, countries of the the Middle East, the Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Iran, um, Turkey um, in particular. And that increase in trade that we can quite easily trace using widely available trade data that took place after 2014, really accelerated after the deepening of the conflict with the West over the first, the beginning of the war in Ukraine, results in seaborne trade growing in in much greater importance. And this has really accelerated after February 2022, in particular, once we see Russia shift very quickly towards selling most of its oil, not to Europe as it did before, but now to non-European markets. That was one of the most sort of important epoch-defining moments, I think, in Russia's position in the global economy. It's gone from you know shipping things principally via pipeline to Europe to now putting them on this hastily assembled but nevertheless successfully assembled tanker fleet that it's just bought up from all parts of the world and is now able to transport, you know, the lifeblood of the Russian economy to new customers, in particular India, you'll have heard of, but also countries like Turkey and China, and also other Middle Eastern oil exporters where the oil is processed and sold back to Europe in refined form. All of this was made possible by Russia assembling this this large fleet at breakneck speed, and looks unlikely to be reversed for as long as the, the geopolitical schism between Russia and the West remains. In addition to that, we've seen because of sanctions, particular sanctions on exports of technology to Russia, we see Russia now relying on imports, parallel imports, but also just very normal legal imports of products from Asian economies, which is, of course, the manufacturing um, hub of the world now. And a lot of this takes place, again, via the sea. Elsewhere, we look at gas. Gas exports by volume to Europe have gone down by in the region of about 50 to 60 percentage points over the course of the last 15 months. It looks set to stay that way. You know, Nord Stream isn't in operation. We've got lower uh, volumes coming through some of the other pipelines. So what's going to grow in importance now is liquefied natural gas, LNG. How do we transport that? By the sea. We've got LNG facilities in the Arctic, enormous ones being built. We've got ones in the Far East. So when we look at it, we can see that Russia's sort of center of gravity is, is shifting away from the land and with it Europe and towards the sea and with the non-West. And it's a simple point, I think, really ought to be um, taken home from anybody listening to this today, is that because that has all of these consequences for the role of the Navy and all of these other consequences for Russia's role in the world more generally.
1: Fascinating description. Richard, Andrew, anything to add to that?
3: Not really. That was that was
2: very comprehensive. I, I think it's two things. I would say, I suppose, first is your emphasis on the Black Sea. I think that's what Richard said is quite right. This is a question of ensuring its own transit routes rather than controlling the sea. But the Russians do have the Russian Navy, particularly has a slightly different approach to understand of command of the sea, and I think this is this is a question about how it goes about thinking about ensuring regional connectivity. So if we think of that export down in terms of ownership, so to speak, of the Sea of Azov, so control there of Sea of Azov, uh, I mean, almost turning it into an internal sea, then command, or, or let's call it controlling ability to export across the Black Sea, because of course, Black Sea is a, is a much larger sea that also has Turkey and other NATO allies in it and so on. So a controlling aspect of its ability to export through the Black Sea in order to access the Eastern Mediterranean, Central Mediterranean, Red Sea, and therefore onto onto the Indian Ocean. So it's it's part of overseeing choke points. And access to the global commons in some sense. It was very interesting that you mentioned Catherine the Great. I mean, the, we do have a couple of chapters in the book dedicated to a historical approach to this. Um, I, I'm very much of the opinion that history is important. The arc of, of, of narrative, as Max said at the beginning, um, this, this narrative arc and continuity and change is very important, but I'd really like to emphasize this sense of the Russian state looking more towards the future and that sense of of a shifting international order. So really, ownership of the Sea of Azov, and then dynamic control of parts of export through the Black Sea really allows it to reach into a a newer set of markets. I I probably emphasize also that when we're looking at the nature of Russian strategy, while we talk about Ukraine, please remember that other things have been going on. So while Special Military Operations, Bidzor Podatsy, if we must, the war is underway, At the same time, Moscow set forth and and developed a national development plan for the Northern Sea Route 2035, launched a nuclear icebreaker. So while we see what's going on in the in the South, in the Black Sea, please remember also there's a lot of activity in the high North to, to develop this sort of second leg of Russian maritime economy. So I, I think, when again, when we look at the war in Ukraine, we tend to be focused on the fighting aspect of this and control of the sea. And it's undoubtedly right that, that freedom of navigation will become a challenge for, for NATO even more so, I think, and its allies and partners, not only in the Black Sea, though, but in the high north. And it's essential that we, we think of these as being linked because, of course, Moscow links it in its own planning.
0: Maybe I could follow up and ask you to maybe develop a bit more what Moscow and Russia is thinking about when it comes to the high north. But I also want to maybe just ask one more question about the Black Sea and the importance of Crimea to the Russian naval fleet. I think part of the Ukrainian counter-offensive is hoping to gain more territory, to move closer to Crimea, and then potentially put Crimea under threat from HIMARS and other long-range fires. And if they can do that, how does that impact the Russian naval fleet? Could it still be able to operate out of Crimea? Would it have to go elsewhere? Does that severely disrupt Russia's naval capacity in the Black Sea? And then maybe just a secondary question. We haven't talked about the Baltic yet, but with Finland and Sweden set to join NATO, that seems to severely complicate the Russian naval forces in the Baltic. And is that now just a NATO lake that Russia seeks to avoid and ergo putting more importance for the Russian naval fleet when it comes to the Arctic?
2: The high north to start with, there are a number of ways of trying to unpack this, but I I want to give it again that sense of future and thinking about what the high north and the Arctic represents to Russia, given this sense of geoeconomic competition. Recently, Rosneft discovered two large hydrocarbon fields and named them Zhukov and Rokosovsky. I find this very interesting because what the Russian leadership is doing is pointing towards and symbolizing the hydrocarbon resources in the in the north as a strategic reserve for this competition. And in fact, while of course, given the fact that, given what's being waged in Ukraine, it's hard to say there is something more important than that. The development of the High North, whether we talk about the Northern Sea Route or all the the aspects that go with that—the infrastructure, the economy, um, the hydrocarbons, and 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 the resources that are there—the the, the hydrography that goes into developing this—I mean, a part of a substantive regeneration of the North and the future economy—this is this is of equal priority, I think, to to Moscow. It's very interesting to watch also that this is where you have, as I said earlier, the the sense of, of sustained investment. While, while we talk about the war being waged in Ukraine, um, at the same time, there is this, this emphasis on developing the strategic, the Northern Sea route to 2035. I think this is why I, I pitched them almost equally in terms of their import to Moscow. I don't know if Richard wants to join in on the high north while we're talking about that.
3: Yeah, on the high north, there's um, all sorts of motives for them being interested in it. So I think if we think about plugging into Andrew's comments earlier about broader Russian strategy and this and the broader Russian view of of its place in the world, one important aspect that's been a constant in any of the national security or foreign policy documents and statements over the course of the last couple of decades has been this idea that the world's going to enter a period of scarcity over natural resources and that there would be increased conflict over these increasingly scarce natural resources. And and what Russia should be doing as a great natural resource superpower is asserting greater control and influence over those. Uh, The high north, so that's not just the Arctic, but also those parts of Russia that are on its uh, continental on land that have these bountiful resources, whether they be precious metals, whether they be oil, gas, etc. Um, there are a number of things that stand out. Um, number one is that when Russia thinks about the f- its future position as a hydrocarbon exporter, as well as some other uh, metals and minerals, um, the deposits that are located offshore in the high north and also onshore are of particular importance. If we look at Russia's LNG you know, strategy for the future, most of this involves, is, is clustered around the Yamal Peninsula and is then uh, going to be transported by sea. Oil, if we think about Rosneft, Russia's largest oil company, the Vankor project is the heart of its strategy for the future. This is located in the high, high north. And the output from that, if indeed this project goes ahead and it's going to be experiencing problems because of sanctions, et cetera, but if we assume that it does go ahead, largely to schedule, then that will involve, again, the transportation of in- increasingly large volumes of hydrocarbons. If we look at some of Russia's plans for coal exports, again, the high north is important. So the high north is very important from a geoeconomic economic point of view, and in particular to Russia's largest oil and gas producers. So that stands out. Um, in addition to that, there are areas that aren't really my field, but from a military strategic security point of view, you can also see why that having greater control or at least influence over the high north is of importance to Moscow. And um, to address the uh, first of your two questions, Max, as far as Crimea is concerned, from a naval point of view, the Crimean naval base offers advantages that no other base that Russia has Uh, whether on Crimea or outside, offers, right? So, I mean, this is the first point to make about that. One of the reasons why they were so sensitive to its future following the 2013-2014 developments in Ukraine. The thought that they might have lost access to this naval base that offered unique advantages that other bases in the Black Sea for Russia couldn't, I'm sure was a very important factor in shaping Moscow's decision to intervene in in Crimea uh, and to ultimately... Exit. So we shouldn't um, underestimate the geographic and sort of strategic importance of the naval base in Crimea, as well as the associated area of land that, you know, it's, it's a mountainous area, which offers certain advantages if you hold it for defending it and for, especially with the advent of long range cruise missiles, um, for exercising control over the sea lanes in the Black Sea. That's not something that can be readily replaced, I think is the point to make. In addition to that, there are some other issues of secondary importance. There are some very important shipbuilding and naval infrastructure located on Crimea. I mentioned some of those that were basically reincorporated into the Russian defence industry following uh, the annexation of Crimea in 2014. You know, the one that stands out, the Zaliv shipyard. This is building the two largest surface vessels. Will be if they are built, big if. But if they are built, these will be the two largest helicopter carriers. These will be the two largest surface vessels built since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I think that that's, again, a point worth making, and that will be taking place at a Crimean shipyard. So Crimea has some very important um, parts for Russia's position in the future as a naval and um, as a maritime. Uh, power. Uh, moving on to the Baltic, as you say, it's difficult to draw the conclusion. any other conclusion now that it will be a NATO lake now that every other country other than Russia is a member um, of NATO with a coastline um, on the Baltic with the accession of Sweden and Finland. That doesn't mean, of course, that Russia will slink away and not concentrate on it. I think, therefore, what we should expect to see is it take what they will no doubt describe as asymmetric measures. I'd expect to see more submarines built to operate, you know, like the Bolshevian class that are that operate quite effectively at short range and in shallow waters, of which the Baltic has. I would also expect to see more deployment of anti-ship missiles, Um, and other countermeasures in Kaliningrad and in uh, the other parts of Russia's Baltic coast to at least complicate the Baltic Sea. It's going to be difficult for Russia to assert control of the Baltic Sea, but nevertheless, I would imagine as a mission, its ability to complicate the activities of NATO will grow in importance. So I'd expect to see more hardware deployed there in the coming years.
2: Yeah, I think there are two things I would add. It's worth adding, just as a final footnote that the high north part, that Prime Minister Mishustin recently stated that the intention was to build a new economy in the north. I think it gives an indication of the way that the Russian leadership seeks to use the north as a means of driving change within the Russian economy. At the same time, we must be fully aware and explicit that that actually there's, there's a significant infrastructure shortage up there. So the investment and the demand side is very big, and the requirements are very big. And this, of course, highlights the point that strategy is different difficult for everyone, whoever tries it, including for for Moscow. So you have assumptions about the way the world is going to evolve, for instance, um, a move away or to the extent to which some states will move away from hydrocarbons as energy, also the nature of climate change and the effect that will have. These are all parts of the estimate then we end up with the idea that actually the Russian state is going to have to invest sub- substantially in, in rebuilding older infrastructure and building new infrastructure to carry this off. So it's a very big, uh, ambitious project in the North, but the intent is to create a new economy. As far as the other two Cs are concerned that you mentioned, this, this is, a I think, an indication just how serious the question is. People talk about the desire, of course, for you know whether that, that's, there's that range, as you know, of the spectrum in discussion. For some people say, that, well, Ukraine should push for, for territorial gains to secure negotiations on its uh, secure victory, even on its own terms. And then there are others who who seek to have negotiation without that. But the discussion of the two seas, the Black Sea here and the Baltic Sea, remind us of the systemic nature of the challenge. This isn't just a question of negotiations to secure an armistice or, or some such, however complex that question is and difficult and bruised that question is. It's a question, first of all, of understanding the escalatory processes of posing a systemic challenge to, to Russian terrain like Crimea. So yes, of course, it is a question of dynamic, of offensive to see if one can hold Russian positions to threat hold it to challenge, even to demand negotiation more on, on Kiev's terms, I would anticipate given the importance of it, as Richard was saying, to the economy, but also as a naval base, any strategist should be thinking about the possibility of Russian escalation for that and what that escalation might look like. I think because it's hard to envisage how Moscow turns around and says, yes, OK, we allow Crimea to be held under systemic threat, even under conventional weapons. So this is that point about the dynamic nature, the complex nature of the challenge that the war presents. And of course, the point in the Baltic is exactly the same. As you as you mentioned, this sense of a uh, turning it into a NATO lake, yes, I expect that's a fair conclusion to come to. But as Richard says, this doesn't mean that the Russians are simply going to hang up their boots, so to speak, and not compete for this. One of the things that Richard and I spoke about at different times last year has been the expectation, well, okay, if it becomes a NATO lake, does that mean that Moscow reduces the amount of trade and economic import and export that goes out through the Baltic Sea? Do they essentially bring down a curtain from the high north and the northern sea route all the way down to to the Black Sea? Is there some form of defensive creation there? Richard may have views, but as far as we have seen, that's not yet been the case. But I, I fully expect that the Russian leadership indeed to try to, to fortify its position. And that's indeed what I think the recreation of the Moscow and Leningrad military districts are, are partly for. This isn't just them creating an idea. to They will struggle to create it as they envisage. But part of the point of re-establishing these two military districts is indeed to complicate the question of command of the sea. And one of the, I mentioned earlier that nature of command of the sea. It's a different concept within Russian maritime and naval thought. We in the West also think of it slightly differently in the UK and the US. But the Russian Navy has, for very large parts of its history, struggled to achieve command of the sea and has had to go to war, thinking that its adversary would have command of the sea anyway. So this is not necessarily a very new position for the Russian Navy to be in. But again, to return to the major point, we're talking about structural European security questions that are related here, and just to link the three, the High North, the Baltic and the Black Sea. Please, let's not forget the Eastern Mediterranean also.
1: Fascinating and very interesting. Thank you very much, Andrew and Richard. I'm afraid we're nearing the end of this really important conversation, Uh, but as a last concluding uh, question, I wanted to ask maybe somewhat of a provocative uh, question. From what you've discussed, this overall change, long-term change of uh, Russian strategy towards emphasis on the sea, wasn't it a little bit uh, Western-made? Part of that dynamic was forced, as it seems, by the Western sanctions, right? Forcing Russia to actually reorient towards countries, to trade with countries of global South, and also perhaps switch from a pipeline towards more of a maritime trade. If that's the case, or maybe I'm totally wrong, or are we in some sort of escalatory uh, vicious cycle where certain steps create certain responses which sort of reinforce regional inclinations of certain countries? And then going forward, what should Western responses, Western strategy be towards Russia in light of everything that you've described today?
3: I think the, the question that you asked, the assumption on which it's based, which is that sanctions have played a big part in accelerating this move towards the sea, in my view, is correct. I think that's precisely what's happened. This is part of Russia's adaptive response to sanctions is to cultivate closer links with countries that aren't sanctioning it, friendly countries, as they refer to them in Moscow. And therefore, for as long as, as I said earlier, the schism between Russia and the West remains, then we should expect to see Russia's interests in the sea grow even stronger. Especially as these initial relations that it's, uh, not initial relations, but this this burst of relations that we've seen in intensity relations over the course of the last near decade decade or so become cemented. Mm -hmm. And then Russian actors have no wish to go back. And for the longer the sanctions remain in place of the scale and severity that we have at the moment, then I think that's unlikely to be the case. If you have a generation of people operating as part of, let's say, the non-Western part of the economy and people become used to that, the prospect for Russia to re-gravitate towards the West, I think is, is much reduced. As far as Western thinking, what does that, the, the implications for sort of Western strategic thinking, I think it poses uh, challenges to sanctions as a tool, or at least the effectiveness of sanctions as a tool. I don't think any of us here would question the need to take measures against Russia for its foreign policy, and sanctions plays an important part in that. But I think what it does is shows that when countries take adaptive measures, as Russia is doing, as all the other countries do when placed under sanctions, it reduces the scope for the use of sanctions in the future against that country. All right? If Russia now trades more with the non-West than it does with the West, then our ability to use sanctions as a lever, as an instrument to deter Russia from its actions in the future, are actually much reduced. We've taken all the low-hanging fruit and some of the medium and some of the high too. There isn't much more fruit to take from the tree. And in fact now, because most of Russia's economic relations are taking place with the non-West, our ability to use that as leverage is diminishing rapidly. So just as quickly as Russia adapts, our ability to, to use that leverage diminishes Two, we know this when we look at the discussion of what further sanctions can we impose, Well, only the ones that really cause us a lot of pain. Secondary sanctions on, you know, oil sales, for instance, I'm sure it could have an impact on Russia's federal budget, but it would also have a corresponding impact on oil prices across the world. And would therefore hit US, European, all other global consumers very hard in the pocket as well. That's politically very difficult, but that's where we are now. We're at that position where most of the options have actually been exhausted and Russia's adapted. When I say it's adapted, I don't mean that it's now living a wonderful, rosy life. There's been pain in that adaptation, there are costs associated with it, and these costs will continue to grow into the future. But nevertheless, from a political point of view, the sanctions haven't been decisive. They haven't stopped Russia from pursuing the foreign policy objectives that it wishes to do. The longer they continue to adapt, the less likely sanctions will be to do that. And I think the probability is already low at the, at the moment. And indeed, as time goes on, the pain that we inflict will be much reduced because they'll simply have other options. So the sea plays a big part in that. You know, we're having a discussion now at this last point about sanctions and their efficacy and how we might be able to use them in the future. But the fact that um, Russia has been able to cultivate closer ties, in particular in reorienting at breakneck speed, its crude oil sales to uh, non-Western markets, I think just goes to show how our, you know, edited collection is far from, a, you know, an arcane or niche subject of interest. It's something that plays a vital role in explaining some of the biggest questions and that are facing us today, as far as Russia is concerned.
2: Yes, these are these are two very important and good questions, Maria. It's a very interesting way of looking at this, and and I don't. Disagree that the sen- the sanctions have have played an important role in this. I, I would caution just a little bit, though, that we don't fall into the idea that well, it's our our activities that drive certain things. Of course, strategy is always da- interactive and dynamic. You know, it, this is this is one of the natures. This is why strategy is such a useful intellectual lens, because it reminds us that action has consequence and response, and we must think two, three, four stages ahead. Nevertheless. Please let's not forget that Moscow has its own interests and its own interpretation of international affairs. And a lot of this, I think, comes from Russia's own foresight about and foresight procedure, thinking about the future and so on, thinking about how the international architecture is shifting. Of course, part of that is is created by, yes, the big discussion about whether the world is becoming multipolar or polycentric or, or however one phrases this at different stages. But don't forget that the essence of this comes from the idea that Moscow has its own foresight about the shift of power in international architecture towards a Pacific 21st century. And a Pacific 21st century involves the, the development of the high north. It also involves greater activity in other uh, maritime elements as well. So this also means that, Actually, we're looking at how do we understand Russia's interpretation of international affairs? This is not just a question of Russian foreign policy or whatever. It's it's trying to have a more sophisticated, more nuanced and dynamic interpretation of Russian international activity. And if we often point to the the aspects and the, the questions of why is Russia back in Africa? Why is Russia back in Latin America? Russia back in the Middle East and North Africa? we find part of this is actually really that the root of this is about emerging markets, the, the idea of a shifting international environment where, where Moscow is also seeking diplomatic connections with the so-called global south. So yes, true that Western sanctions um, maybe contribute to this, I would say probably accelerate it. They accelerate it. Like the war hasn't undermined it, only accelerated it, sanctions in many ways accelerate this. What should Western strategy be about this, I think, is again a very important point. We shouldn't have to start from from scratch. We, we've already done a lot. So my first answer is don't treat this as a new question and suddenly we have to reinvent the wheel. In fact, actually um NATO's MARCOM, I think, is well informed about this. The the, the US has reestablished the second fleet, uh, there's Joint Force Command Norfolk. So I mean the, the Euro Atlantic community as a whole in many ways is a maritime alliance. It has considerable maritime resource and it understands the role of sea power in many ways. So and quite a sophisticated way. What I'm saying here, though, is that we have the capability, but perhaps not the conceptual organisation to think about the challenge. Because we have all this capability, but we talk in terms of perhaps of, of the fourth battle of the Atlantic or defending our sea lanes of communication across the Atlantic or some such. Actually... In many ways, this means that our thinking about Russian power has its roots in the 1990s, not in the 2020s or the 2030s. In fact, we often talk about Russia as just really just, in inverted commas, a European challenge, while China is the big global one. This, in my view, is a substantive conceptual mistake. In fact, what we need to do is, is reorganize the capabilities that we have. I mean, we're rebuilding, as I say, Second Fleet. You know, Marcom is capable. NATO thinks in these terms, reshape these towards a more conceptual Conceptual lens that is expecting to meet Russian maritime power in the Indo-Pacific region, in Antarctica, for instance, in the South Atlantic. So we expect to bump into these uh, these capabilities, these these assets that Russia has. That's what I think Western strategy should be focused on: is having a more 21st century horizon of evo- evolving Russian power, not writing it off because they've suffered heavy casualties on on in ground forces in Ukraine, but actually interpreting the shifting dynamic of of Russian power to think about how Moscow positions itself in in 2030. That is not the fourth battle of the Atlantic. That is a challenge for the global commons.
1: Well, that sounds like a great conclusion to this really uh, embrace of a very important discussion. Uh, Thank you very much, Andrew and Richard. There is definitely a lot more that we could discuss on this topic and we will at some point, but today, unfortunately, we'll have to end it there. Uh, Once again, Andrew and Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Just a reminder that the new edited volume is titled The Sea in Russian Strategy. It's out now and it feels like everybody should purchase it and read it because it's really important for uh, Russia's foreign policy and our responses to it going forward. And remember, if you haven't yet subscribed to our podcast Russian Roulette, please do. And additionally, do subscribe to our sister podcast The Eurofile, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and have a great day, everybody.
2: Thanks all. Thank you for having us, Maria. Thank you, Max. Thank you to to your colleagues at CSIS.
1: You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon.
0: Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online.
1: And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.